All right. Welcome to Real Live Talk. I'm your host, Duke Lamastra. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode. I am all alone today. <laughs> I normally have a guest, but uh, I every once in a while I do one of these by myself, but I haven't done one of these in a long time. So I just thought now's a good time. First podcast of the new year. And uh, so I just figured that I would do this one on my own today and just kind of share my heart. So it's going to be heart to heart time. And but anyway, really grateful that you're here. I do want to say thank you to everybody who's done anything to participate in this show for all of the amazing guests that I had throughout uh, 2021. I started this podcast back in uh, May, I believe it was of 2021. And really just um, really, really blessed and honored by everybody that was able to, to join me as a guest. Thank you to everybody who listened, watched any of that stuff, commented, shared. It's been amazing. So thank you guys so, so much. But uh, today it's just me. I thought I'd share my heart a little bit uh, at the beginning of this new year. It's something that I, I like to do anyway. Uh, I want to share with you out of Psalm 1, the first psalm. And uh, it's become one of my favorite passages of scripture. And uh, one of my, maybe my favorite thing to teach on, I don't even know, but but definitely up there with things that I really enjoy um, teaching about from the scriptures. Uh, let me just tell you real quick something that has really been heavy on my heart, not in a bad way, that sounded bad, but something that's been on my heart in a good way that I think that the Lord has been uh, speaking to me and sharing with me uh, just for for me personally, but it's also something that I shared with the church because I felt like it was something that God was saying in this season about allowing God to father you. So like as I'm stepping into this new year, I'm just a little bit more, I think, conscious and aware of allowing God, allowing my heavenly father to really father me, to shepherd me. And I think that's so important because I think that we can get caught up with so many different things and we can be so quick to kind of take the reins and try to take control. Something that Jesus said is, you know, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is the desire and the intention of God to give you rest that you would live in and experience the rest of God. He wants you to know his rest. He wants you to know his goodness. Rest doesn't mean that you don't do anything. It doesn't mean that you don't move. It doesn't mean that you're not busy. It doesn't mean any of that. It's more of a, a state of mind. It's a state of being. It's a, it's a position of peace and trust and confidence in God where you recognize that it's not on you. The pressure to succeed in life the pressure to perform, the pressure to be pleasing to God even, that none of those things are on you, but it was actually all accomplished in the finished works of Jesus Christ. We, we took communion yesterday as a church family. We actually did three different services, so I had a lot of communion yesterday. <laughs> but one of the things that was kind of um, my focus and some of the teaching that I did on, on the, the time of communion um, centered around the finished works of Christ and in the fact that in what he's done for me and for you, what Jesus did for me and for you in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, that he's actually provided, he's made provision for those issues and those challenges that we're facing. He's made provision 
for not just the the sin, which is, of course, a major thing. His blood allows us access into the presence of God. His blood gives us the forgiveness of sins so that we can be forgiven and accepted. We can be counted as righteous and worthy to stand before our heavenly father. So it's, it's amazing everything that he's accomplished for us. But I believe that in the, that in what he did for us on the cross, he's also just satisfied and he's taken care of. He's already bought and paid for those dreams that he's given you, those promises that he's given you. In other words, everything that's ever going to be needed in your life, in your present, in your future, it's already been accomplished through what Jesus did, through his finished works. The, the works are finished through his finished works on the cross. And you and I have entered into a place of rest. I encourage you to check out the, the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 3, reading into Hebrews chapter 4, if you're interested in understanding a little bit more about what the rest of God is all about, because we enter into, it actually says that the people of God, the children of Israel in the Old Testament, they were unable to enter into the rest of God because of their unbelief. So what that tells me is that it is our belief that allows us access into the rest of God. And we can be saved, we can be good Christians on our way to heaven, but still not experiencing the rest of God. And I think that it comes from an issue of unbelief. In other words, we don't believe God. We believe that he is God, sure, but we might not believe in everything that he's said. And we might not believe that he's really as good as he is. We might not believe that he's really as good as his word says that they are. You know, we might not believe that he's really got great things in store for us, that he's got a, a, a marvelous future planned. We, we might not believe these things about God, right? Like it's one thing for me to sing a worship song and to declare, God, you're good. God, you're faithful. But it's another thing when I'm going through something difficult in my life, I'm going through some kind of trial or pain point or walking through a tragedy, my back's up against the wall, I'm under tremendous amounts of pressure or whatever it might be. It's another thing for me to be in those kinds of situations and for what wells up from the inside of me, from the deepest depth of who I am to be that God is still good, that God is still faithful. And that's what a belief system is. The, the, the heart of man is the seat of our belief system. And so I can think thoughts about God being good. And again, I can have conversations about God being good. And I can listen to a good sermon about God being good. And, and I'm just using God's goodness as an example because I think it's one of the most basic, elemental, fundamental truths of who God is that really needs to be in place because it governs our lives. If I don't believe that God is good, I'm not going to take a whole lot of risks in my life. This, this is just me talking, okay? If I don't believe that God is good, then when God shows me something, when he speaks to me, when he shows me a plan or a strategy for growth, or he gives me a business idea or something like that, that seems risky for me, in my own strength, if I don't really truly believe in my heart that God is good, that he is who he says he is, that he is faithful, then I'm probably not going to go after that plan that he's given me. Why? Because I don't trust him. And because I don't trust him, because I'm not sure if he's really, really good or not. In other words, I know that he's good, but is he really good to me? 
is the thing that I think it comes down to. Uh, there, there's this psalm, and um, I, I forgot to. I, I want to say it's like one. It's one of the psalms. Anyway, David says, "You are good, and do good." So God is good, but He also does good. He does. He's He treats you with His goodness. He wants you to know and to understand his goodness. And so we've got to become acquainted with the goodness of our heavenly father. We've got to become acquainted with our heavenly father to the point that we know who we are and the position that we have in his heart, because that positions us to really have the confidence in him to go after the things that he's shown us. It gives us the confidence to go out of our way, to get outside of our comfort zone and to serve the people around us. You know, if I don't really believe that God is good, I'm probably going to limit the way that I minister to other people. Like if I have something, some issue inside of me that hasn't fully, like I haven't fully accepted the reality of God's goodness and God's faithfulness in every occasion, then maybe, this is just an example, maybe I'll have faith to pray for somebody who's got a bad headache but maybe I don't have quite as much faith when it comes to somebody with cancer or some kind of terminal illness or something of that nature, right? I'm just being real. So because your faith responds to what you believe, you know, a lot of times we like to, we, we like to talk about faith. Oh, well, they just don't have faith. They just don't have faith. The, the, the problem very often is not that you don't have faith. Actually, the Bible says in Romans 12, 3, that God has given to each and every one of us the measure of faith. That's the old King James. Um, New King James says a measure of faith. The King James version of the Bible says um, the measure of faith. I believe that God has given all of us. We we he, He's no respecter of persons. He doesn't like some of us better than others. And so I don't believe that God gives you more faith than he gives me. I think that it's an issue of learning to walk in that faith and learning to respond to that faith that he's given to us. So anyway, and yes, we do grow in faith and there are increases in faith. I believe in that. I'm just saying to say that you have no faith is not a biblical statement because God's given to each and every, even if it is a measure of faith, the faith of a mustard seed is big enough to accomplish the impossible. The, the, the disciples came to Jesus and they were like, Jesus increase our faith. See, that's where most of us are a lot of the times. Uh, I need more faith. I need something external to come onto the inside of me. I need something new. I need something more. Remember, Jesus has already accomplished everything that you will ever need on that cross at Calvary. So I believe that we're in this process of an unveiling, of a revealing, of his goodness being revealed to us and us learning how to respond in greater and greater ways to his goodness into what he's already done and accomplished for us. We learn to walk, you know, you've received Christ Colossians two, six, I think it is you've received Christ. So walk in him. The problem is not in the receiving we've, we've received Christ, but now we've got to learn to walk in him. We've got to learn to think the way that he thinks. How do we do that? We'll get to that in a minute. But what was I saying before I went off on that? Anyway, when we become acquainted with God's goodness and when we know that he's our loving father and we can relate to him as a son relates or a daughter relates to their father, recognizing their safety and their security in the arms of their father, 
it just positions us. So there's um, this amazing verse that you'll find in, I should maybe read it to you, uh, in Romans chapter 8, and it's verse 19. But let me start in verse 18, just because it's it's super cool. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The suffering that you're going through, the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in you. What God is doing, what God is working you know, later on, just a few verses from now, we'll 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 read. I mean, I'm not going to read it, but a few verses later is uh, this verse in verse 28 that says that all things work together for the good of them that love God and that are called according to His purpose. God is so good. God is not the author of confusion or pain or sickness or disease or tragedy or any of that. God doesn't cause those things in your life, but He is so good at repurposing the bad stuff along with the good stuff because it says all things work together. So God is able to take the worst circumstances of your life and to work them together to produce something that is good and something that is eternal and something that is so much better than anything that you could imagine that that it's not even worthy. The glory that God is working in you and revealing through your life is not even worthy to be compared with those sufferings that you're going through. That's not the point though. Verse 19 is what I wanted to get to for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now I love this verse and I teach on it all the time, but I'm thinking about it a little bit differently today. I want to focus in on the fact that it says the sons of God. And when it says sons, it includes daughters as well. Okay. Um, the creation itself, creation itself, this world around you is earnestly, desperately waiting for, anticipating the revealing of the sons and daughters of the Most High God. Now, why doesn't that verse say that this world is looking for the revealing of the great prophets or the great apostles or the great whatevers of God? It could say anything there, but it says the sons of God. That the world around you is desperately waiting for your revealing, for the revealing of God's people. But not just that they would be aware that they're God's people, but that they would be aware that they are God's sons and God's daughters. Because there is something amazing that happens when you recognize who you are as a child of God. When you recognize who you are in Christ that you have been accepted, that you've been adopted as a child of the Most High God, that He's your Father, your loving Father, your perfect Father, and that you belong to Him, that you are safe and secure as His son or as His daughter. There is something that changes, something that shifts, and you become positioned to be an impact to this world in really profound ways. And that's why I believe that the creation itself is eagerly waiting, anticipating, longing for, waiting for, the revealing, the unveiling of the sons of God. That word revealing, it means, that's what it means. It's an unveiling. It's it's the word um, apocalypse, where we get the, the, the term, the revelation, the last book of the Bible, revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the unveiling or the revealing of Jesus Christ. Again, you've received Christ. We've received Christ, but we've we're learning to walk in him. And that's a process of life. But as we learn to walk in him, 
as we learn to think like him, as we learn to think the way that he thinks, that will that we're who we are, who he's made us to be. Let me say it like this. Our true nature and our true identity in Christ is being revealed. And that's impactful because it's not about us. It all points to him. Uh, let's see. I got a couple comments here. It's a matter of belief. I think we have the faith, but we don't believe we will see what we ask for because we still see ourselves as unworthy. That's such a good point. That's such a good point. Yeah, because my my again, my faith responds to what I believe. And so if I've got an issue in my belief system, if, if my beliefs are telling me that God isn't really fully good or that God is only good sometimes or he's only good to me when I've done everything right. <laughs> hello, that God's only good to me when I've read my Bible enough or when I've said enough prayers or when I've done enough good deeds. Like we make it about these things that God's limited based on my behavior, my conduct. But guess what? Now, I'm not saying that your behavior, your conduct doesn't matter. So don't don't hear what I'm what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter. What I'm saying is is that it's based on the finished works of Jesus Christ. And I love that you use that word there, um, unworthy. We see ourselves as unworthy. And if I see myself as unworthy to stand before God, you know we see in um, in the book of Hebrews that we come boldly, before the throne of grace, that we can find mercy and grace to help in time of need. We won't stand boldly before his throne if we think that we're not worthy to be there. And again, my worthiness, your worthiness to be there, it has nothing to do with you. If I had to try to qualify for anything <laughs> that God has for me in my own strength or in my own efforts, then uh, I wouldn't get any of it. It's not about, it's not about me. It's not about you that makes you worthy it's not your goodness it's not your abilities that makes you worthy to stand before the throne of god but that's exactly the point actually that it's because jesus already did everything he became poor that we might become rich he became sin that we might become the righteousness of god in christ he did everything for us he was obedient for us so that now we are counted as worthy in the eyes of our heavenly father because of what Jesus did. And so because I'm not there on my own merits, because I'm not approaching God's throne based on Duke Lamastra's ability to be right or to be accepted, but I'm approaching God's throne based on the fact that Jesus did everything necessary. He paid the price. He paid for my sin. He paid for my disgrace. He paid for my shame. He paid for the condemnation. He paid for all of it so that I can stand boldly before the throne of God, knowing that I'm his child, knowing that I'm his, that I'm, that I'm a son of God and that I belong to him, that I'm accepted. There's boldness there because I'm not coming in my name. I'm coming in the name of Jesus. And so because there's boldness there, I can find grace and mercy to help. I can partner with the heart of God and I can pray and I can declare and I can intercede and I can do all of those things. But if I'm not able to come with that boldness because I'm stuck feeling that I'm unworthy to be there, <laughs> the, the same 
I'm not going to put the same weight. I'm not going to put the same weight on God. Why? Because I'm putting the weight on myself. And so, okay, well, I guess I'm not worthy. So I guess I have to, you know, be careful. I've got to walk on eggshells. I've got to whatever. We change the way that we approach God, the way that we respond to God based on what we believe. There's something that I wrote um, in uh, in my first book. I, I, I made this statement. I said, if, excuse me, you are able under the covenant of grace, because the veil has been torn, we've all, we've been accepted by God, by what Christ has done. You know, if you confess with the mouth of the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When you give your life to Jesus, when you accept his free gift of life and righteousness and salvation, you are, he gives you the right. <laughs> he gives you the right. When you believe on his name, John 1.12 tells us he gives you he gives you the right to become a child of God. You have the right. That word right is the word authority. It's like the jurisdiction. You've been given jurisdictional access to the family of God. You belong there and nothing and no one can take that away from you. And so we approach him based on the finished works of Jesus Christ. So anyway, I make this statement. You can come as close to God as you want but you will only ever draw as near as your heart allows you to. So God is not holding you at a distance. He's not holding you back. He's not rejecting you. He's not saying that you haven't been good enough to draw near to him. Again, none of us have been good enough to draw near to God, but that's not what gets us there. That's not what gives us permission to enter. It's actually the blood of Jesus that gives us permission to access the holiest place of all, the very presence, the very face of God. It's based on what Jesus Christ has done for us. So all this to say, uh, I, I don't know, I went off on a tangent there, but like all of this to say that God wants you to allow him to father you. He wants you to allow him to really father you, to really shepherd you, to shelter you, to show you who you are in him to show you who he is. <laughs> he wants to do all that. And uh, and so I just wanted to encourage you, and I didn't even get into the real part of what I want to talk about today, but I just wanted to encourage you to get that weight off of yourself, to stop living under, you know, if there's one thing that you do differently this year than maybe you did last year, I I would encourage you to let it be this to get out from under that weight that says that it's all about you, that you've got to do all these things to try to perform or to be acceptable. You know, there's this issue of significance and it's really an identity issue that I think that to a certain extent we probably all struggle with, that there's a there's this thing on the inside of us that I believe is put there by God, this longing, this desire to this desire for greatness, this desire for significance, this desire to achieve great things. I believe that that's a God-given thing. But when it's not properly submitted to the lordship of Jesus, in other words, when I make it about me and my strength, then I'm just, I'm trying to prove myself. And I end up comparing myself to others. And I end up feeling like a disappointment and like I'm letting people down. I end up feeling like I'm letting God down. I love what uh, one of my friends says. He says, uh, don't worry about letting God down because you were never holding him up in the first place. <laughs> and I love that because it's true. We put all this weight and pressure on ourselves and believe me, God can handle it. Jesus ceased from his labors. 
He finished his work on the cross and he ceased from his labors. He is in a perpetual state of rest and he invites us into his finished works where we get to enter into the rest of God. And that happens as we believe that he really is as good as this book says that he is. We really believe when we begin to believe and accept as fact that he really is that good and that faithful, then we can rest in him knowing that the weight and the pressure is not on us. Again, it's not an invitation into laziness. It's not an invitation into not working hard. It's not an invitation into any of that, but it is an invitation into putting your trust and your hope and your confidence in him to accomplish his purposes in your life and through your life. So go with me to Psalm 1, the first Psalm that we find in the Bible. I have a just a massive uh, love for this particular psalm. And the reason is, at least one of the reasons, I I grew up in a Christian school. I grew up in a Christian home. Thank you, Jesus. I grew up in a Christian school. Uh, I went to Christian school all my life until I was a sophomore in high school. And then I went to public school. And I found out that public school wasn't all that much different <laughs> from Christian school as far as, you know, it, of course, it's different as far as the teachers. Uh, we had some Bible teaching here and there. We had chapel once a week in the Christian school. We had some things like that. We would have prayer time in the morning. Some of the teachers would pray um, with us. So there, so there were things like that that I'm that I'm grateful for. As far as the students and as far as the you know morality of just life in general it wasn't honestly all that much different but one of the things that i am really grateful for for my upbringing and um i went to a christian school because my mom taught in christian school in 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 different school systems and so we would always go to the school where she taught at and so uh anyway that was the reason behind that but i was so grateful one of the things that I'm really grateful for is that they taught us as a when I was as young as kindergarten, they had us memorize scripture. And some of those scripture verses and even whole passages that I memorized during that time have stuck with me. They've stayed with me and I haven't forgotten them until this day. And I remember the very first scripture passage that I had to memorize as a kindergartner in Christian school, New Life Christian School in Flemington, New Jersey, I don't know if that's still there or not, but shout out if it is, was Psalm 1, verses 1 through 6. So it was the entire psalm, and uh, we had to stand up and recite it in front of the school, so I actually had to know it, and it literally stuck with me all these years, and I'm so grateful for that kind of stuff, This the the biblical principles that were instilled in us in those um, it, from the upbringing that I had, so I'm so grateful for that. But this was the first passage of scripture that I ever really memorized. And I knew all the words since I was five years old. I knew all the words. But have you ever gotten too close to something where it becomes so familiar that you don't really learn from it or you don't really get to experience it? So that's what happened to me with this passage of scripture. It was so familiar to me. I could recite it. I could quote it. I believe I was, I, I learned it in the uh, new international version of the Bible, but like I knew that like I could recite it. Right. And so it was always with me. It was always in my head, 
but I never really paid attention to what it actually said. And I actually had to make a concerted effort in my adult years when I was already, I don't know, probably several years into, into ministry. I thought about it and I was like, I know this passage of scripture from the time when I was very young, but I realized I've never actually learned anything from it. Isn't that, isn't that weird? Like I knew, I knew it, I could recite it, but I didn't ever actually feel like I learned from what it was actually saying and what it was about. And so I had to actually like kind of shift my mind and try to get myself to a point where I was like, let's pretend I've never read this before and it's not super familiar to me. And let's pretend that I'm reading it for the first time. And when I did that, it just it, it impacted my life so much. And it's just become one of these passages of scriptures for me that I felt like for some reason was hidden from me for all these years, even though I knew it so well, I didn't understand the meaning behind it. And it's just one of these passages of scriptures that has just become one of my favorites in the entire Bible and has uh, just it just continues to speak to me over and over and over again. And I just really like it. And it's one of my favorite things to teach on and something that I like to kind of look at again, like we're at the beginning of a new year. Uh, and, you know, we think about new beginnings. We think about the different things, maybe new goals that we're setting and things like that. And I think that this passage of scripture is going to help you a lot. And when we get to verse two, that's what I really want to kind of focus on. I'm actually only going to read probably the first three verses. But when we get to verse two, that's what I call God's one step plan. And that's just my dumb title for it. All right. But I believe that it's a biblical strategy for growth, a biblical strategy for success, a biblical strategy for experiencing the abundance and the goodness of God in your life. And so much of it has to do with what we're focusing on. All right. So verse one, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. There's three things there. He says, blessed is the man. That word blessed really means like happy. Like, did you know God actually wants you to be happy? Like your happiness is important. God wants you to be joyful. He wants you to enjoy life. He wants you to enjoy him. He wants you to be a joy-filled person. He really does. It's, it's important. Blessed is the man or the woman. Again, we're not being sexist here. Blessed is, blessed is the person who walks not in the... So three things. Number one, who walks not. So blessed, happy. The one who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Another word for counsel is advice. Who walks not in the counsel or the advice, or the admonition of the ungodly. Now, what I want to say here is that just because somebody is not a Christian, want to make sure I'm saying that. Yeah, just because somebody is not a believer, it doesn't mean that they can't give you that they can't give you godly advice. And just because somebody is a believer doesn't mean that their advice is necessarily godly for sure. And that is a major understatement. Here's the thing. I can go to, I go to, you know, real estate seminars every once in a while, business conferences, things like that. And the people that are teaching and giving out information, they're not always believers. They're not always Christians, but I can still learn from them. Because they're they're presenting their counsel, they're presenting their wisdom, they're presenting their advice in a way that like if they start presenting advice in a way that's going against the authority of scripture, then I'm not gonna I'm I'm gonna reject that. 
but I can listen, I can receive from somebody who is able to give good sound advice because they have experience in an area. So what I don't believe that this verse is saying is I don't think it's as concrete as don't listen to counsel from people that are not saved and only listen to counsel from people that are saved. Now, again, use balance there. But what I'm saying is plenty. there are plenty of godly people who can give you really bad advice. <laughs> so just being saved doesn't mean that you're always going to know what you're talking about. We've got to get our wisdom, our understanding, our instruction from the scriptures. You know, there's something that Donald Trump said years ago, like way before he was a presidential uh, candidate or anything like that. Something that he said years ago was something to the effect of, you know, you talking about Christians, you have you've had all of these answers for business and for wealth. You've had all these answers forever, and yet you don't do anything with it. But then people in the world use principles from the Bible and actually build wealth and build prosperity and build businesses and so on and so forth, right? So <laughs> the point is that biblical wisdom works. Godly advice, godly counsel works. All I'm saying is when you get into the, oh, well, so-and-so said this, or, oh, this is this is just what I do because it's what has always been taught to me. Or, you know, Billy and them or whoever it is, like, this is what they say. This is what they, whatever. It's not necessarily godly. What you want to do is make sure that you are following godly wisdom, godly counsel, godly understanding, godly instruction that is consistent with the authority of scripture. Here's the thing. Not everything in the Bible is all like spiritual and up in the clouds. Like you'll find wisdom and insight and understanding into business, into building relationships, into building churches. You'll find the wisdom and insight from the word of God to do and to accomplish everything that God has promised you and that he showed you and that you have on your heart to do. So blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Pay attention to that word walk because... We're going to see three words here. It's walks in the counsel of the ungodly, stands in the path of sinners, sits in the seat of the scornful. So there's basically three different positions there. One is walking, one is standing, and one is sitting. So walking kind of deals with direction. So don't base the direction of your life on ungodly counsel. Don't base the direction of your life on ungodly counsel. Maybe God has spoken to you and he showed you something and you don't see it quite working out or lining up yet. So what happens? Oh, well, let me try to figure this out on my own. Let me get some other advice from over here. And again, you can get you can get advice from someone who's saved or not saved. That advice doesn't just because the person saved doesn't mean it's going to be godly advice necessarily. And so you want to make sure that wherever you're getting your wisdom, your counsel, your advice from, and I believe in having counselors, I believe in surrounding yourself with people that, that are like-minded, that are going to push you toward your destiny, push you toward the vision that you have on the inside of you. I believe in surrounding yourself with people that are godly, that know the word of God, and that are uh, going to instruct you biblically. I, be I believe in that. I, I have that in my life, and I want more of that in my life. So I believe that that's important for every single person, but don't set your life up to go in a direction that's based on ungodly counsel. 
So if God's spoken to you about something and you know the direction that you're going, just because you might not see it working out right away doesn't mean that you suddenly shift and pivot and start trying to figure it out in your own strength because that's where we get into a lot of trouble. So blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners. So there's the second position, standing, which is sort of like a still position to, to take a stand, to have a stance. So to stand in the path of sinners. Now, this does not mean, uh, I gotta say this, this does not mean that you have to completely separate yourself and distance yourself from the world. To, to, to stand in the path of sinners does not mean that you can't have friends that are not saved. I used to, I, I'm just going to be honest with you. When I was a kid, that was the understanding that I got. I don't know if it was from church or from, I don't know where it came from, but I sort of had this idea that like I had to be, I couldn't have friendships with people who were not Christians, who were not saved, who didn't think like me or believe like me. I thought that, and you know what, there's maybe there's some, there's an issue of, uh, you know, protecting your mindset and stuff like that. You want to be careful about the environment of people that you're surrounding yourself with, especially if you're coming out of something where maybe you've had, um, you know, a sin habit or sin struggle. And, you know, so there are times where you've got to sort of change your environment and change, even change your friendship sometimes. And I'm not, I'm not denying that that's not necessary sometimes, but this is not saying that you can't have friends that are not saved, friends that are not Christians. Now, you don't, of course, want to be surrounding yourself with people that are tearing you down. You don't want to be surrounding yourself with people that are not going to help you get to where you want to go. But you can be friendly and you can have friends with people. The, the, the point is, Jesus became a friend of sinners. Jesus became a friend to people who were considered to be ungodly, who were considered to be unlovable, who were considered to be unworthy, who were considered to be unacceptable. He he built relationships with people, but here's the thing. Of course, he never allowed their ungodliness to infiltrate his heart. He never allowed their ungodliness to influence him or to lead him in a negative direction or in a wrong direction. He was always able to influence those that he encountered and that he built relationship with. And so that's the thing there is standing in, do not stand in the path of sinners, the path being the, the way of life. You know, we're not, we're not setting ourselves up in a position to go down a direction other than what God has prepared and designed for us, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, um, scornful, people who scorn, people who mock. Some translations of the Bible use the word mockers there. And uh, what's the other one that they use sometimes? Some of the different versions of the Bible. Um, scornful mockers. I forget what the third one is. But anyway, uh, people who are scornful, people who mock, people who speak negatively and spew their garbage and their bitterness out and they're condemning people and talking down to people and looking down on people. They're doing all these things. You know, this would probably happen to you depending on what kind of job you have. I've worked in restaurants and things like that in the past. And there would always be these little groups that would form and there'd be all this negativity talking bad about the management, talking bad about the customers, talking bad about all these things. And what happens is one person or a couple of people can really begin to change the atmosphere of a place just by speaking negatively and by spewing their bitterness and their discontentment around the room. 
And before you know it, that sort of like gets in your mind and now you were having a good day, but now all of a sudden like, oh yeah, people start to piss you off a little bit more because you've engaged in this conversation where there was mocking, there was scornful speech going on. This might be an oversimplification, but I just like to look at this part of this verse, like stop hanging around negative talking people. It says uh, sitting in the seat of the scornful. So sitting is the third position, kind of talking about remaining, resting, abiding, where you stay stationary. It, it doesn't mean you've got to like run out of the room every time somebody starts speaking negatively, but it does probably mean that you shouldn't hang out for too long there unless you're able to shift the momentum of that conversation. Now, if you can shift the momentum of the conversation and bring it into something more positive or whatever, then that's awesome. But so often, you know what? Good example of this is um, in Numbers chapter 13. Is it Numbers chapter 13? I'll verify that for you. But in Numbers chapter 13, I don't know why. Yeah, that's what it is. Okay. when <laughs> Just making sure. Numbers chapter 13. When the 12 spies were sent by Moses to spy out the land of Canaan and to come back with a report of whether or not it was worth it to go up into the land and what the land looked like and if it was fortified and all this stuff, 10 out of the 12 spies, so we're talking about 12 individuals, but we're talking about a nation of probably a you know maybe a couple million, few million people. We've got 12 people sent out it was one representative from each of the 12 tribes 12 families we can call it like that of israel sent into this land they go into the land and they spy it out and they come back 10 out of those 12 individuals came back with a negative report they all said the same thing as far as what they saw in terms of the goodness of the land oh man you should have seen these grapes they were so big these clusters of grapes this fruit like everything the land flows with milk and honey it's amazing it's everything that they told us it was going to be oh but the land is full of these armies these enemy nations the cities are fortified the walls are high there's giants in the land we were they they make this statement we were as grasshoppers in their sight uh, no, excuse me. We were as grasshoppers in our sight. And so we were in their sight. In other words, they saw themselves as small and insignificant in the eyes of their enemy. Like it was just this really negative behavior, this really negative understanding that they came back and they started to spew that out across the camp. And we see Joshua and Caleb, they were the only two of the 12 that were of a different persuasion. And so they started to try to silence the people, to shut everybody up before everything got out of hand. But the problem was that that negative talk, that mocking, that um, that scornful speech, it spread like wildfire throughout the camp so that all that anybody could see or the majority of the people, they got focused in on, they honed in on the negatives and why they couldn't go into the land and why they could not be obedient to do what God had said that he was doing, sending them into the land, giving them the land. This was God's promised land. He promised it to them. And he had given them everything that they needed to go up into the land and to be successful. But because of these negative reports that got out of hand too quickly, they focused in on the negativity and they actually refused to go into the land. And if you know the story, then God sent them back into the wilderness for 40 years and not good, not what they wanted. 
the point is negative talk even if you are even if you are coming at it from a different perspective sometimes it can be hard to shift that conversation sometimes it can be hard for one or two people to shift the momentum of a negative conversation because it just tends to spread so quickly and so all it is is just uh you just want to be careful because when you hang around too much I'm not saying stop going to your family get-togethers and stop hanging out with people at work. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying when you surround yourself too much with negative talk, that can really begin to affect your psyche. And before you know it, you know, I, I really believe that one of the greatest deterrents to really going after and pursuing the things that God has spoken to you and promised you is when you allow negative talking people in your life to affect you in a negative way. And to be honest, there are people around you that all they want to do is talk negatively to you and tear you down, tell you why you can't do something, why it's not going to work, why they tried it and it didn't work. So it's not going to work for you or why so-and-so tried it or, you know, why you're not good enough or whatever. And they're going to try to use their experiences and things that they've heard to try to get you to stop moving forward. And the truth is that for some people, there's just this thing in their mind that they are not advancing in their life. And so they don't want you to advance either because so often misery just loves company. And so there are people that just want you to stay where you are because it makes them feel better about where they are. You know, you are very, very rarely going to get criticized for advancement in your life by somebody who's doing more than you are. You're not going to get criticized in your life by people who are doing what you're doing or that have the same level of vision. You're always going to get criticized by people that have less vision or that are discontent or bitter about where they are in life. Now, again, let's not deny godly counsel. Let's not deny godly wisdom and instruction because sometimes, you know, we do need people to bounce ideas off of and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, if God has spoken to you and you know what God has said to you, go after it, pursue it. Again, we can we we need counsel, we need wisdom from other people in our lives, but just be careful about the source of where that information is coming from because again, there are those that just want to be negative to try to keep you stuck where you are. Verse two, this is what I really want to get to. It took me a while to get here, but this is what I want to get to. But his delight. So again, the happy man that's not walking in the counsel of the ungodly or standing in the path of sinners or sitting in the seat of the scornful. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. This is what I just um, in a really silly way. I like to refer to this as. God's one step plan for growth and for success. So his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, when you see the word law in the Old Testament, what you can you can look at that as God's instruction. You know, what David had access to when he wrote this psalm. Um, is this a psalm of David? I'm assuming it is. I don't even know for sure. Uh, but when the psalmist wrote this psalm, what he had access to was the law. He had access to basically the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He had access to the law. That's what he had access to. And that was the only, that was the word of God. That was the scriptures that, that the, that the psalmist had access to at the time of writing this. 
And so he's delighting in it. When you delight in it, and when you meditate on the law of God, the instruction of God, the word of God day and night, I don't know about you, but I'm really happy that now like we have the law, but we also have the prophets and the history books and we have the whole New Testament. I love the whole Bible. But definitely Leviticus isn't my favorite book of the Bible, right? So, but for for the psalmist, they had ac- he had access to basically the law. So he says, in your law, God, on your instruction, on your word, on the scripture, I delight in it and I meditate in it day and night. That right there, the process of meditating on the word of God, of keeping his word in front of you, keeping his promises in front of you, keeping the law of God, the instruction of God in front of you day and night, that is the key to your growth in this new year. That's the key to your growth. That's the key to your success. It really is. It's meditating on the word of God. Now, let me break that down because that does not just mean that you have to actually have the book, the the Bible in front of your face day and night, all day long. It doesn't mean that. You've got stuff to do. You've got a job. You've got a family. You've got whatever it is that you have to do in life. I, I get that you can't just be constantly reading scripture all day long, all throughout the day and all throughout the night. That's not what it's saying. The point is that you meditate on it. You ponder over it. You think about it. You have that internal dialogue, that internal conversation where you're speaking it back to yourself. You're speaking it out loud. Maybe you're talking to others about it. Maybe you're having this engagement with God where you're talking to him. God, what does this mean? God, show me what this means. Maybe you're writing it down. Maybe you're memorizing scripture verses, you know, and it's also, I'm just going to, I'm going to be a little bit elastic. Okay. I'm going to expand this just a little bit. When we meditate on God's word, we meditate on God's word. I believe that that goes, um, not that that includes not just when we're reading verses and and chapters from the Bible, but also the the character and the nature of God and who God is. Because I mean, John one one tells us that Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word. the The Bible that we read is the written Word, but Jesus is the word. And so we get to know God by communing with him. And the more that we get to know him, the more we can think the way that he thinks and we can follow after him. Again, like what I was talking about a little while ago, as you've received Christ, so walk in him. How do you learn to walk in him? You learn to walk in him by learning more about him, understanding who he is. We understand who he is. We get to know him by understanding his word and reading his word. All I'm saying is this doesn't have to be a this um, very like boxed up approach of meditating on scripture. That means I'm going to read a verse and then I'm going to think about it. I'm going to think about that verse. Like you can take just a concept. I spent a long time at the beginning here talking about the goodness of God. Meditate on the goodness of God a little bit throughout the day. You know what I mean? And yeah, scripture verses are going to help you with that. They're going to enhance that time of meditation where they're going to give you something to 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 work with something to build with truth to stand on and so find a scripture verse or two that talks about God's goodness or that talks about God's faithfulness or that talks about one of the maybe one of the names of God or the fact that he's your shepherd or that wh- whatever it might be right but 
when we meditate on the word of God, we meditate on who God is, on his nature, on his character, on his promises, when we keep what he has said to us in front of us, then that becomes the place of our focus. Because if you are not focusing on the word of God, you will be focusing on something else. And very often we can focus on things that are negative. Very often, I think our minds are sort of bent that way to sort of go in a negative aspect. And so I can, I, I know this better than anybody. I can spend, let me not even say spend, I can waste tons of time just thinking about negative things, thinking about my circumstances, thinking about whether it's a financial challenge or if it's just looking ahead to the future and there's uncertainty and it's like that, what if this happens or what if that happens? What if God doesn't come through for me? What if this doesn't, like those different things, right? That we can focus in on when those become the topic of that inner conversation that we all have. We all have this inner conversation within ourselves. When that becomes the topic of that inner conversation, we focus in on those things. And then that becomes the subject of our meditation. And one of the things, one of the, the, I just think the most common and probably most effective tools that the enemy uses against you is worry. He wants to get you in worry. He wants to get you in confusion. He wants to get you in anxiety. Why? Because this is just something that I say, I believe that worry is the devil's counterfeit of biblical meditation. Because again, when I'm meditating on scripture, what am I doing? I'm keeping it in front of me. I'm thinking about it. I'm pondering over it. I'm having an internal dialogue. I'm having an internal conversation. I'm just kind of mulling over that thing. I'm chewing on it, so to speak, right? So that process of thinking through something allows it to move from my head into my heart. And once something moves into your heart, that means that it has become part of you. That means that it has become part of that belief system that we were talking about earlier. And again, that is so key because out of that system of beliefs that you have, that's what your faith responds to. That's how you begin to take action in life based on what's going on in your heart on the inside of you. Right. And so we have these internal dialogue and discussion when I'm filling that, when I'm filling my mind with God's word, with truth, and I'm meditating on God's word day and night. That means not necessarily that I've got the book in front of me all day long, but maybe I read a little bit in the morning or I read a little bit before I went to bed at night or whatever. And I'm just sort of thinking whether it's one word or one phrase, or one verse, or one passage, or one promise, or one truth, or whatever it is, I'm basically carrying that on the inside of me throughout my day, and I'm allowing the Holy Spirit to remind me of those things. The Holy Spirit's so good at his job, and one of the things that he does, it tells us in the same passage we were in earlier, Romans chapter 8, verses uh, 13, 14, 15, 16, actually I think it's more like 14, 15, and 16, he, that he bears witness. First of all, it calls him the, the, the verse, verse 15 calls the Holy spirit, the spirit of adoption. And then the next verse says that he bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So just imagine this, the Holy spirit works on the inside of you 
to remind you, to bring to your remembrance, to make you aware and conscious of the reality that you are God's son or daughter, that you belong to him, that he is your perfect father, that you've been adopted into the family of God and that you belong to him. That's, that's who the Holy Spirit is. That's one of the things that he does. And he's so good at his job. But so often we ignore what he's saying, if we're honest, and we focus on what the world is saying. We ignore what God is trying to tell us. And we focus on all of these other things and all of these other issues and challenges and things that we face in life. And we can allow ourselves to get into this state of worry or the state of anxiety or confusion. And we can get into this place where we just sort of go down that, that downward spiral. We go down that, that rabbit hole that leads us into a place of just confusion or despair or frustration or whatever it is. But so often it comes from this place of worry. Because I believe that worry so often it takes precedence in our mind. And if we're not careful, we can allow the stuff that we're worried about to just push God's word right out of the picture so that worry takes center stage. And now we're focused on things that are outside of our control. And here's the thing about worry that I think uh, just makes it so deceptive and, and so really effective in the way that it tends to consume our mind if we don't recognize it and we don't get rid of it. It's um, if you've got something that you're dealing with in life or something that you're going through, maybe it's something that hasn't even happened yet, but it's something that you're frustrated or that you're there's confusion about. You're not sure what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen with my job this coming year. I don't know what's going to happen with this whole coronavirus thing. I don't know what's going to happen with this election. I don't know what's going to happen with this. And it's fine. We don't always have all the answers. But we can allow that to sort of that sort of what if on the inside of us, what if this, what if I lose my job? What if I get sick? What if I don't have the medical insurance to pay for it? What if this, what if this happens to my family member? What if, and we can allow those things, which are really undermining the authority that we have as God's sons and daughters, as believers to take authority over those negative thoughts and stuff like that. But we allow those things to kind of run through our mind, what it does, what worry actually is, it's like this reaction of our minds. See if you can follow me on this. It's a reaction of our minds to circumstances that are beyond our control, whereby thinking about them over and over and over again, sort of playing those scenarios out over and over again in our minds. It's like we're in this race against this what if. So this what if question of what if this happens or this is confusing or I don't know what the outcome of this is going to be. There's uncertainty there. And we're it's it's running ahead and then we're trying to outrun this thought of what if. And that's what worry becomes. It becomes this sort of battle in our minds of trying to stay in control of circumstances that are beyond our ability to control. And rather than rest in God, rather than place our confidence in God's ability to solve whatever that problem or whatever that issue is for us on our behalf, we take the we try to um, take charge of the situation and try to outrun that thing in our mind. And it just makes for a really unrestful and really unhealthy way of life. 
And so we're trying to outrun something in our mind by thinking about it over and over and over again. And the reason why I said that it's such a deceptive thing is because if there's one thing, if there's one thing that we love <laughs> as people in, you know, as far as a, a negative desire, there's one thing that we love that's hard for us to give up. It's that ability to be in control. There's something about just, we don't like to be out of control. We like to be in control. We just, we just do. And that's what worry is. It's sort of like a false sense of control. It's, I, you know, I can't control the situation, but I can control the way that I think about it and feel about it. And I can try to get ahead of it in my mind. And if I just think about it enough and go over the scenarios enough times then I can figure something out and I can make something work. And it just becomes this weird self-perpetuating spiral effect that goes on. And like, you know, if we're not careful, we can lose an hour. We could lose a day. We could lose a week. We can lose significant amounts of time where we're not really experiencing the goodness of God in our life. And we're really kind of missing out on life because we're somewhere else in our mind. I mean, I don't know if that's happened to anybody that happens to me. I'll be with my family, but I'll wreck my mind is in a different place. And there's times when I'm just worried about something. There's times when I'm confused about something and I can't seem to get it out of my mind. I'm just being honest with you. There's times when I just, I feel like I, I can't seem to get it out of my mind. And so I'll be doing my work or I'll be whatever. I'll be with my family. I'll be spending time with friends. I'll be doing whatever I, that I'm doing. And I might not be totally present because my mind is somewhere else completely. And it's such a scheme of the enemy because I think when we learn to live in the moment, we can enjoy life so much more and we can really focus more on God's goodness and we can just experience life. We can experience life more when we live in and we focus on the moment that we're in. And I just believe that that's something that God wants for us. And so learning how to get out of that mindset of, of worry and worry is just one example, right? But learning how to get out of that mindset of other things, taking pre precedence and taking center stage of our mind and of our thought life and learning instead, because again, it's, it's like a vacuum. You can't, it's something is going to fill it. Something's going to rush in there. So it's not just like, okay, I'm just going to stop worrying. It doesn't work. Like you could, you could just try that right now. <laughs> like if you're worried about something, just try, just try to stop worrying. It's not going to work. It, it, stopping worrying is not going to work because what's going to happen is you're going to stop worrying for like 30 seconds and then you're going to go back to doing life. But the worry is kind of like an autopilot that your mind is just going to kind of default to that. And it's going to go back to it without you even thinking because you're going to be doing other stuff. And then that sort of subconscious part of your mind is going to automatically look for something to fill it. And it's going to be whatever comes normal and natural. And so often I think that we've trained our brains to go negative. And it doesn't work to just say, I'm going to stop thinking about this. You've got to fill that space with something else. And so meditate on the word of God day and night. What has God said? What does God's word say? What has God promised you? 
you know, and, and I even believe in taking things. So if God has spoken to you, let's say God has given you a specific rhema, a revelation, a promise. He showed you something. I would even say you can meditate on that. In other words, just keep that in front of you instead of the, the, the word of God. The word of God in the word in the Bible is life. But the word that God speaks to you is also life. Jesus actually said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. That word there is the word rhema. It's the, the word that God speaks to you on a personal way. It's that revelation that comes to you. That's life to you. You live based on the word of God. And if we're not living based on the word of God, then we're still going to have that space occupied by something else, but it's probably going to be by something that's not bringing life. Instead, it's bringing death. It's bringing misery. It's bringing destruction. You've got to eat, right? You've got to eat. You've got to consume. You've got to feed off of something. Your thoughts are always feeding off of something. And so if you're not feeding off of the word of God, then you're probably feeding off of something else. Your mind is going to default to something. And so we've got to learn to train or retrain our minds to not go negative if if that's something that you struggle with, but instead to go toward the word of God so that when problem hits, when trouble hits, when something negative happens, when fear comes in, when something bad happens, when you get that bill that was unexpected, or you get that phone call that was unexpected or whatever, instead of automatically just spiraling into, oh no, what am I going to do now? What if this happens? What if that happens? What if I, what, blah, 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 blah. Before we do all of that, what if the first thing that welled up from the inside of us was, you know what? God is good. God is good. I might not have all the answers right at this moment, but God is good. I might not know what tomorrow holds. I might not know where I'm going to get the money to cover this bill. I might not know how I'm going to handle this lawsuit. I might not know how I'm going to handle this challenge in front of me, but I do know that God is good and it's not worth me getting outside of peace. You know, Philippians chapter four, verse six, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. That means that there is nothing that could come your way. There is not a single thing in existence that could come your way that is worth you becoming anxious over. And so often I think at least I do this. I justify the worry and the anxiety. You know, when it's something that's bad enough, I feel like, no, this is, I do need to worry about that. I do need to worry about this. And I, and I can kind of get tricked in my mind like that, but I've got to come back to that place of, you know what? God is good. He's faithful. He's seated on his throne. I'm his child. I belong to him. And there's nothing that's going to come my way that is outside of his goodness that's beyond the scope of his ability to perform. He's just so much better than anything that I could be facing. So we meditate on the word of God day and night, delighting in the law of the Lord. And uh, verse three is the result of what happens. And I love it so much because the Bible is just so good at at, at talking. <laughs> and uh, this is this is something that I feel like gives us a really beautiful picture of the result. So his delight. So again, the happy man or woman, their delight is in the law of the Lord. And in the law of God, we meditate day and night. In verse number three, the result is he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither 
and whatever he does shall prosper. So first of all, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, not just a river, but rivers of water, meaning there is a constant, never ending flowing supply. We get into trouble when there's no movement. We get into trouble when it's just us. You know, if there's no, if we're not constantly receiving from our source of life, who is God, his word, right? If we're not receiving from our source, we're not going to have what we need to survive. We're just not. And so as a tree, so the the imagery is as a tree. So when you meditate on the word of God day and night, what happens is you begin to grow. That's why I said this is a strategy for growth. Meditation on the word of God, keeping God's word in front of you day and night. You'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters. Like a tree planted by the rivers of waters. So again, I mean, there's this constant flow of the sustenance and what you need. Because again, when you're meditating on the word of God, it's you're never going to run out. Like it's not going to, you're not going to run out of truth. You're not going to run out of revelation. He's always going to be speaking to you. There's always going to be more. You can read the same verse for years and still God can reveal new truth to you and revelation to you every single day because it's alive. It's living because it's him. (laughs) It's coming from him. It's coming from his goodness. It's coming from his mind, his presence, his wisdom. So when we live like that, we have this constant flow. Again, it's not based on my strength. It's based on his strength. It's not based on my abilities. It's based on his ability. So you'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters that brings forth its fruit in its season. I just want to encourage you. You will bring forth fruit in your season. So when you keep the word of God in front of you, this is something that happens to a lot of people. They'll start to, okay, um, you know, it's a new year. It's a new year. I've got my resolutions. I've got my goals. I've got these things. I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to start reading my Bible every day, or I'm going to take communion every day, or I'm going to go to church twice a week, or I'm, you know, these different things that we do, whatever it is, goals are good, but we start off on a certain process. And then when we don't see the results quick enough, what do we do? Two weeks in, 10 days in, eight minutes in, a month in, whatever it is, we give up. We throw in the towel. We say, this doesn't work. And we just kind of go back to the same old, same old, the normal way of life and nothing changes. Why? Because we went back to the normal pattern of life. You've got to give it time. You know, sometimes sometimes you'll see breakthrough so quick, but other times there's a process of planting. There's a process of There's a process to growth. Again, in some seasons, it'll be really, really quick. In some seasons, it'll take a little while. You know, there'll be a process of sowing and planting. Then all of a sudden, it'll just be massive growth in a moment. The thing is, when we trust in our abilities and in our own strength to get things accomplished, or when our focus is on the circumstances of our life, we can abandon, excuse me, we can abandon the process too quickly. But when our trust and our hope and our confidence is anchored in God, in who he is, and we keep his word and we keep his promises in front of us, now we've got something to sustain us through those times where maybe we're not seeing all of the growth. So the reason I I brought this up, that the tree that brings forth its fruit in its season, 
you might not always see the fruit. You might not always, you might not see it right away. You might not see it as quickly as you wanted to. Maybe you've been going through some things and you haven't seen the fruit of your labor to the point that you would like to see it yet. And maybe you're close to giving up. I want to tell you, don't give up. Don't give up because even though you might not see the fruit just yet, there is growth. See, the growth process is constant because what you can't necessarily see, you see the fruit. You know, we all want to see the fruit. We all want to see the pretty fruit up on the tree because that's what's edible and that's what looks nice and all of that. What you can't see that's going on is the roots below the surface. They're below the surface. So you can't necessarily see them, but they're growing. They're spreading out. They're stretching out. They're becoming stronger. There's more growth that's that's happening on the inside that might not be visible. But here's the thing. Even if you haven't seen fruit as quickly as you wanted to, as long as you keep going forward and you keep trusting God through the process that you're in, there is growth that is taking place on the inside of you that's causing you to grow up in maturity so that in the season of fruitfulness, you'll be able to sustain the fruit that's produced and you'll be able to have longer and more profitable and healthy, long-lasting times of harvest and fruitfulness. And, you know, I, I just think that so often we miss out on what God is doing because we give up too quickly because we're so focused on just what we see in front of us. But you've got to be able to trust God to the point, you know what, even if I don't see it quite yet, I know that God is good and I know that he's faithful. And so I'm not going to give up. Whose leaf shall not wither. <laughs> whose leaves shall not wither. There's lots of things that can cause the leaves of a tree to wither. Sometimes it could be, you know, too much sunlight, not enough sunlight. There's not enough, you know, if there's not enough nutrients in the foundation, in the root system of the tree, there's not enough good stuff being absorbed into the tree. Then when the sun gets too hot, it can scorch the leaves um, quickly because the tree doesn't have inside of itself everything that it needs to be sustained. There's this thing about like salts I've heard that can get into the soil and that suck the water out and robbing the tree of its nutrients and stuff like that. There's all kinds of things that can happen. But here's the thing. This is a promise from the word of God. You'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, bringing forth its fruit in season and the leaves shall not wither, meaning that there is nothing that is going to be able to steal from you what God is doing and what God is producing. So that's a really good promise because there are times when it's going to look like or feel like or seem like that things are being stolen from you that the enemy's winning, that he's gaining ground, that he's taking stuff out of your hands, that whatever it might be, sometimes it'll be at the hand of people that you love, that, that you're close to by your own family members and close friends. People will betray you and abandon you. You know, maybe, maybe this has happened to you before. I hope it doesn't happen to you in the future, but maybe it's happened to you before where you've built something up, you put your heart and soul into something and maybe you had a partner, but then your partner kind of stabbed you in the back and stole that thing from you or took the credit or whatever it might be. So there are seasons of life where it might seem like something has been stolen from you or where you missed out on something or there was lack. Let me show, let me show you my favorite verse in the Bible. Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Another word for want is the word lack. 
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. So often I believe that we miss out as the people of God. We miss out on what God is doing because we have a mindset of lack. We have a scarcity mentality that causes us to stay where we are, not trusting God to do what he said that he would do. So we go into survival mode. And when I go into survival mode, I don't get to be in faith mode. <laughs> like those two modes don't really work together. Uh, you know, I'm not in advancement mode if I'm in survival mode. And so what I do is I stay where I'm at and I try to conserve my energy. <laughs> I try to conserve my resources. Oh, well, it's going to be a really tough one. It's going to be a really tough season. It's going to be a really tough, you know, going back to the tree metaphor, it's going to be a really tough winter. So we've got to, we're, we're not going to grow much. We're going to conserve everything that we have and just kind of stay. If we've got a scarcity mindset, a scarcity mentality that's based on lack, we are going to make the wrong decisions. We just are. We're not going to, you will not make the right decisions if your mindset is that God is not abundant enough to make this happen in my life, to come through on this promise that he gave me. So the promise is the leaf shall not wither. Even though it might seem like in a season that something has been taken away from you, I promise that God has something better for you to replace that thing that you lost. I promise you. And so let's not focus on what's being stripped or what's being eaten up or what's disappearing or like, you know, sometimes there, let me say this. Sometimes there's, there's real loss that happens and it's important to mourn. It's important to grieve. It's important to do that. It's important to feel the feelings, but it's also important to keep trusting God <laughs> in the midst of that process. So your leaf shall not wither. And, and look, the very last part here, if if none of this other stuff did it for you, uh, it's hard to beat this one. As far as promises in the Bible go, it's hard to beat this one. It just says, and whatever he does shall prosper. <laughs> that is the ultimate result of meditating on the word of God day and night, of keeping God's word, keeping his goodness, keeping his truth, keeping his promises in front of you, the ultimate result is whatever you do will prosper. I know people, I know, I know it's, people don't like to talk about the prosperity. We get into this weird stuff like a prosperity gospel. There's no prosperity gospel, but guess what? The gospel of Jesus Christ does include prosperity. It does. It's part of salvation. I'm not talking about prosperity in terms of, you know, gold plated toilet seats and awesome cars and all this kind of stuff. If you've got wealth, I don't have any problem with how you spend it. But but, the, but the point is that God wants you to prosper in all things. He wants you to prosper in every area of life. And I believe that it starts with a mindset of abundance, a mindset that's not scarce, a mindset that's not based on lack. Look, if if they if Jesus had a mindset that was based on lack, he never would have taken five loaves of bread and two fish and multiplied it to the point that they fed thousands upon thousands of people and had 12 baskets full of leftover fragments left over. It doesn't happen when you approach a problem from a, from a mindset of lack. That does not happen. Miracles do not happen when you approach problems from a mindset of scarcity, from a mindset of this is not enough. God's not enough. God's not big enough. When you approach life 
when you approach your business, when you approach your family, when you approach your relationships, when you approach your finances, whatever it is in life, from a mindset of lack. Now, I get that you might have lack in your life physically right now that you might not have tangibly in your hands everything that you need. But God does. He has everything that you need. And so our mindset has to be based on him, on who he is, again, on the finished works of Jesus Christ. Because when we're focused on his finished works, we can rest in him and have that confidence and that assurance that he's got us, that he's got our back, that he's faithful, that he's not going to leave us, and that he's not going to forsake us. That mindset is so key because God wants you to advance in life and he wants you to prosper in everything that you do. There's nothing wrong with wanting to prosper. There's nothing wrong with wanting to build wealth. We can go about those things in a very negative way where we're outside of God's will for our lives, where we're taking advantage of other people, where we're doing it through dishonest gain. So I'm not saying that the prosperity and the wealth should be the goal. It shouldn't be the goal. He should be the goal. <laughs> Obedience to his voice, to his word should be the goal. His presence should be the goal. But the result, the byproduct will be prosperity. It will be abundance. It will be increase when we learn how to keep his word, his promises in front of us and meditate day and night on who he is, on what he's done, on what he says, on what he's promised. Uh, I, guys, I've talked, it's been an hour and 20 minutes already. Jeez. Sorry about that. I talked for a long time. I hope that that was blessed, that that was a blessing to somebody, that it was somehow beneficial. Again, I, I hadn't done one of these solo episodes for a podcast in a long time. And I thought that I just uh, wanted to kind of do the first one of the year like that, kind of share my heart with you, share some thoughts with you. I hope that maybe something that was said here is able to, uh, I don't know, help you have a more successful 2022. Uh, again, success in terms of monetary gain and like more stuff and increase, like that should never be our goal. That doesn't need to be our focus, but I do believe that it is the normal result of following Jesus, of being obedient to him, of meditating on his word and keeping what he says and what his, what he's promised us in front of us. And so thank you, everybody. Thank you so much for anybody that uh, took the time to check out this episode live or listening later. If it blessed you, encouraged you, challenged you, added any kind of value to your life, if you consider subscribing, sharing, or leaving a review. I just saw the other day, I don't know when it started. Maybe it's been like this for a while and I just didn't realize it, that uh, Spotify does let you leave reviews right now. It's just a star review. I don't think you can leave comments or anything like that. but. Um, so if you're on like Spotify or Apple Podcasts or something like that, and you're able to leave a review, that would really help me out a lot. It'd help this uh, channel to continue to grow and get in front of more people. And yeah, I'll be back on Thursday with an awesome guest for another awesome conversation Thursday at, I believe, 1.30 p.m., something like that. I believe that's what it is. <laughs> I'll send out some kind of announcement ahead of time. But anyway, thank you guys so much. Hope you have an awesome day. Happy New Year. And I'm just believing with you for 
this would just be a year for you to experience God's goodness and faithfulness in your life, in your family, in your business, all of it, in your personal growth, just like never before. So uh, thanks again, everybody. Have a good one.